Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. But you also had people that were very fine people. Very fine people on both sides. And the, and the aliens with mind meld and give them the technology. They're bad aliens. So the, uh, Are you surprised the Nazis were influenced by demons? No, if demons are real, I would definitely think they'd be on the side of the Nazis. Yeah. McDonald's is connected to the Clintons. They chop up the bodies and put them into the sausage and hamburgers. People are being cannibalized. Look it up. And I'm watching CNN talk about this as violent white nationalist protests. We have done everything in our power to keep this peaceful, you know? It's uh, Pepe's become kind of a symbol. Good afternoon and welcome to Yeah Na Pasaram, a show about fascism and its gravediggers. I'm Cam Smith. I'm Andy Fleming. And joining us today is Professor Pam Nylon, the author of Young People and the Far Right. Thanks for joining us. Good to be here. I guess just to begin with, what was the impetus for writing this book? Well, I'm a youth sociologist and in my work I came across the figure that the majority of of people who are attracted to the far right, actually joining the far right groups, are coming in at the grassroots level, are aged between 18 and 25. And that's the demographic that I explore. I explore younger as well, but anyway. So I thought it would be very interesting to write a book on young people in the far right. At the same time, some colleagues and I were successful in getting an Australian Research Council grant to research the far right in Australia. And so I'm working with Josh Roos from Deakin and uh, Mario Poika, who you may know from Victoria University, and Brian S. Turner from the Australian Catholic University. The four of us have got a project to look at the far right. I had the impetus to write the book partly because just after I started to write the book, we went into lockdown, which postponed our data collection for that project. So what started as an expanded literature review for me on young people and the far right eventually turned into a book. Um, And then I spoke about the book to my friend Anitra Nelson, and she's an editor of a series for Palgrave on alternative futures. And she suggested I put a book proposal in to write a pivot, a 50,000-word short introduction book for that series, which I have done. The full title of that series is Alternatives and Futures, Cultures, Practices, Activism and Utopias. I was wondering, could you speak a bit about what a utopia is in this context? Well, Anita and I have had substantial discussion on this because in her preface to the book as a series editor, she points out that The way I use it, utopia, is not perhaps in the way that she originally intended it when she put the series title together. In my view, utopias can either be benefactive or actually quite negative when they're completely unrealistic. And I certainly agree with the nature that we need utopias or we have nothing left to believe in. But the kind of utopia that is typically offered by the far right is a utopia in which, well, I wouldn't personally ever want to live. It's an authoritarian ethno-state in which privilege is restored primarily to white males. And so it's a utopian vision in the sense of reaching for something that is aspirational, that is libidinally satisfying, that works at the level of fantasy. Some of the techniques that the far right uses to recruit young people is through chat 
services like Discord, um, which offer a chat function for young young men in particular who are doing online gaming in teams and also individually. So they're playing first-person shooter games or World of Warcraft or whatever massive um, multiplayer program, um, you know, game that they're playing. So the kinds of utopias that the far right suggest almost match some of those worst-case scenarios. It's almost like a dystopian future rather than a utopia. Did you find that young people are often associated with uh, various forms of political rebellion, but not necessarily or usually on the far right? What did you discover about what in the current era is especially appealing about far right politics to the young people you've um, examined in the book? Well, that's the interesting thing. It doesn't start with politics. It starts with a number of other kinds of activities that they may enter into. In the book, I make the distinction between what I call floaters and actual members. And floaters are young people who might, for one reason or another, float in and out of various chat sites like Telegram, Gab, Parlay, some of those other social media sites, and toy around with the idea of trolling people on the left or trolling high-profile women or trolling people of colour. And and so it's kind of, I realise that they there's a level at which they float may float in and out, enjoying the rudeness and the anonymous kind of trolling and harassment that they undertake but then perhaps pulled further into the rabbit hole one of the other interesting figures that I discovered was that one third of young people report that they get most of their news and information through YouTube and the algorithmic qualities or characteristics of YouTube is that they have a a preference and a suggest column so if you go onto YouTube you'll see on the right hand side a whole lot of things that are suggested for you to follow up after you've watched the one you're watching and the algorithms that are created uh, are really quite interesting. It, it all is in the coding of the original YouTube clip that the far right, for example, might put up that will tend via the algorithm, via the bots, to suggest particular kinds of far right sites that they might want to go to. And so they can be led quite quickly down the rabbit hole by simply clicking on YouTube posts, really. One thing you note in the book is this tendency for a lot of the memes which are employed to be dehumanizing uh, to reduce the enemies to sort of faceless characters i think of like the npc meme as one example that has been very popular in the past few years could you speak about the connection between memes like that and the concept of necropolitics <laughs> yes indeed i mean i mean necropolitics i'm a great fan of Achille. Mbebe, who was an African philosopher, who coined the term necropolitics to describe situations where a group of people within a society are deemed not worthy of life, if you like. They're not worthy of the respect or the legitimacy or being legitimate citizens. One of the ways that, say, a, a dictator like Duterte in the, in the Philippines context will be to say, but nobody cares about drug dealers and people who take drugs. You know, the best thing to do is actually to wipe them off the face of the earth. And he stands by that as a political platform and gets support within it. But Mbebe gives the example of the Philippines as a place where necropolitics have been practised. Now, to take that over to something like the dehumanising of certain racialized groups or powerful women or people on the left, if you create a meme out of them, you make them... We go back to the video gaming trope. They're like something that would pop up on a video gaming screen. They're not really people. They're just an avatar. So memes are in that sense like an avatar. So if you if you if you do something to the meme or the meme represents we poke fun at the meme, 
then that's one way of spreading hate and, and mockery of the meme. But the, the memes are often very cruel. And the, the memes also get modified all the time. So in the book, I talk about Pepe, the green frog, and the many, many, many iterations that we've seen of Pepe. So once he fell under the influence, you know, under the, um, he became owned, if you like, by the far right, then he started to morph into Trump. On the other hand, the, the one you talked about, the example you gave, is an example of a dehumanising process that's going on. Um, speaking of cruelty, you also invoke the concept of cruel optimism. Can you explain what that is and why it's relevant? Uh, yeah, that's some um, Berlant's um, term, cruel optimism. Cruel optimism. Cruel optimism is is what we think is going to make us happy in the short term, but which proves, in fact, to be an obstacle to our progress and our happiness long term. So there are many things that fall under the category of cruel optimism. I use the term in the book to describe the kind of invitation that the far right makes to young people to become part of the brotherhood, to become part of the heroic band of fighters for what they call freedom, and the way that that's actually cruel optimism because the far right is not actually a good place to be. There's a lot of infighting in far right groups. Far right groups can end up carrying out particular sorts of violence and young people may be caught up in that. The reputation that they get can be detrimental the kinds of relationships that they form, the friendships and romantic relationships that they form may be compromised or maybe of an abusive kind in the end. So in many ways, the far right holds out a glittering promise, but it doesn't deliver on to some young people. It doesn't deliver on what it actually promises. It doesn't deliver freedom. It doesn't deliver satisfaction. It doesn't deliver truth. It doesn't deliver any of the things that it appears to offer. But in the short term, it's it's like, I'll be as bad as I can be. That's the great lure of the far right for certain groups of young people in their teens, particularly, who might get, who might decide that it's the biggest, baddest, worst thing they can do. So it's really fun. The, you're right of how the the far right offers up this false promise, and obviously the lack of delivery on that, and the lack of delivery of the utopia, is something that creates a lot of churn, uh, both in the members and the hangers-on. But what is it that keeps the people that do stick with it in these groups? Now, that's one of the most intriguing questions and one that I wasn't really able to answer in the book. We do know that the drop-off rate is the age of 30. So there are far fewer people in the far right over the age of 30. On the other hand, those who are in the far right after the age of 30 are pretty hardcore. And I guess that they just become wedded to that particular ideology. They often become, they see themselves as intellectuals. So, for example, um, Tom Sewell is writing a book while well, he's in jail at the moment, and he intends it to be a kind of almost like a manifesto, an intellectual manifesto of the far right in Australia. So that gives you some example of the kind of people who might stay on after the age of 30. It's continuing in a fine tradition of uh, Australian jailhouse far right manifestos. I think Jim, Sal- Jim Salim did his PhD in Well, yeah, yeah, not the first. Absolutely not the first. No, I'm with you there. You provide, uh, Pam, an account of some of the reasons why young people and young uh, straight white men uh, in particular feel aggrieved, and yet I guess that's a you know widespread sentiment. Many people feel alienated or marginalised uh, in this uh, society, in this neoliberal society. What is it that means that, do you think, or is there a way of explaining why for some particular young people they find the far right as opposed to the... Uh, I don't know, the, the moderate right or the far left or some other political ideology so attractive? Oh, I think it, uh, the far right sets out to 
appeal to the aggrieved individual and, and to speak to them and say to them, you know, there's this concept in the US of white victimhood and the far right really pushes white victimhood. Uh, for example, it's not in Australia, but in, in a place like the UK, for example, where there are very long waiting lists for public housing. One of the main reasons that yet certain far right groups have flourished in the UK is around the idea that um, South Asian families, for example, will get preference over families in the, in the area for generations who are looking for public housing. And, and that is used by the far right to whip up a particular kind of white victimhood, if you like. The same thing happens in the southern states of the US, not just in the southern state. In Australia, there's also some attempt to do that. I mean, some of the politicians that flirt with the far right, and I think we know who they are, they also do that, that kind of idea of white victimhood. Pauline Hanson wrote her, ran her entire political campaign on a, on a kind of white victimhood idea. So what the far right does in relationship to young people is it names a number of, of categories. If you actually go to some of their recruitment material and they actually publish how-to manuals to how to recruit young people, they, if you're talking to a particular kind of young white man, you point out how you know, feminism's gone too far there's at the woke politics, they you know they're really down on woke politics. It's really terrible just to be a straight white man these days, and we know how bad it is, boys. You know, so they take that particular kind of thing and pull in the idea that if you join us, we're really going to make a change. We're going to be not the victims anymore. And I guess that that's really appealing. I guess I took the concept of aggrieved entitlement and young masculinity, white masculinity from Michael Kimmel in the United States, who's done a lot of work on far-right groups and young people and how they get drawn into them. I also took a lot from various biographies that have been written by Jack Buckby, um, Christian Piccioloni in the United States, and perhaps with, also within Australia, and some of the um, exit organisations that run in various countries to help people who have been in the far-right actually exit from it. And, and really, I felt that all the time that they were always going for that aggrieved entitlement, the white victimhood, the idea that the government doesn't care about you too. It's very anti-government, very anti-elitism. Um, speaking of other uh, sources of right-wing inspiration, uh, in the book you, you quote Derek Black, who's uh, yeah. formerly associated with Stormfront, and he, mm. uh, you quote him as saying that it's, it's easier in my experience to get people to feel like they're willing to agree as long as you're sort of encapsulating in things that seem mainstream, yes. like talking about crime rather than talking explicitly about race. In reading that comment, in, in reading the book in general, although there's attention paid to, um, well, there's particular attention paid to uh, particular forms of, I guess, what might be termed uh, radicalisation of young people, there's arguably less attention paid to, as you cite Pauline Hanson, but other figures who tend to deploy what's known in Australian politics as dog whistling. I was wondering mm -hmm. if you could comment on the situation of the far right and young people in terms of the broader uh, political context in uh, contemporary Australia and other similar societies. Yes, I, I, think, I think in Australia, one of the big dog whistling things is the idea of overcrowding, that we've got too many immigrants coming in and they're not being, you know, they don't fit in anymore and you can't walk down the street anymore. That kind of thing, the overcrowding idea, you know, you see um, on the back of cars, guys where I live in Melbourne, tearing around with F off, we're full, as a kind of a sentiment that there's just too many people here. So population is where it often starts. And certainly that's true in a, in, in a place like France, where especially with the Parti Socialist in France at the moment, 
under Marine Le Pen, there's a strong feeling that there's just too many people, that's overpopulation, that we're losing culture. I don't know whether that's really dog whistling. One of the things I was thinking of is we Matthew Guy has recently been uh, re-elected as leader of the uh, Victorian Liberals and the previous state election campaign, there were suggestions that some of that uh, disguised language might, might have been employed in order to identify uh, con- public concerns over uh, alleged rising crime, but presenting that in a way which made it implied that this was a problem associated with African youth, for example. Yes, that's, yes, that's right. Yes, I actually, it didn't go into the book eventually, but originally, but I have written another article, which I don't think they got published, on the furphy of African youth crime gangs and how they never were, really. They didn't exist at all, really. I mean, they're just, they're just kind of call-out on social media things where even a gang that was identified as a, as a kind of African youth gang was in fact composed of young people from about 10 different nations. There was no way in which it was predominantly an African gang. I think that get, that got used in a political context in various elections in Melbourne for that purpose, that there was this idea of youth as a th- of immigrant youth as a threat, very similar to what's happening, what happens in many other countries, particularly in Europe. Um, the idea of that being a, a rallying point for decent white Australians to stand up, stand up, stand up. And the idea also, I suppose the best example we've seen in that in Australia, if I have to really think about it, is the Cronulla youth, the Cronulla riots, where white youth felt that they should go out and really perform vigilante type things against um, youth from ethnic backgrounds who had gathered near Cronulla Beach. And there was a lot of whipping up by the right, not necessarily the far right, I suppose, in the sense that I'm using it, but certainly by fairly extreme rightist voices to whip them up into an angry mob, really. I suppose you could uh, describe the African gang crisis as a fantasy, but you do discuss a different sort of fantasy in the book. Could you tell us what fantasy discourse is and why it's so important? The fantasy discourse is important because... It's speaking to young people, to their imaginations. And in the book, and especially in Chapter 3, I go through a number of extreme fantasy far-right groups that really work on the fantasy idea. And the, I deliberately chose some pretty extremist groups, which I'm not going to name because I don't really want to perpetuate them, I suppose, but to suggest all kinds of fantasy warrior, hero, hyper-nationalist ideas that really sort of speak to a heroic self, a self on a quest for the truth. One of the most common terms that get used on gets used on the far right is the idea of red pilling, which takes which is borrowed of course from the Matrix when Neo has a blue pill or a red pill and he chooses the red pill. And through the red pill, Neo then sees reality was not reality, that it's all con that there's a truth behind everything that is controlling everything. That is very much a conspiracy kind of theory. So the idea is if you get red-pilled, you see reality. And the red and the far right offers red-pill young people. And that's one of the reasons why I call it a fantasy. It's like it, it works on, ter- on terms like red-pill. And it, it also, through the memes, through some of the things that are online, through Pizzagate, which I talk about in the book, and to encourage young people, for example, to go and search throughout the net and find fantastical conspiracies. And the far right often says to young people, go and do your research, find it out for yourself. And unfortunately, that often means just finding a YouTube video that then 
when it finishes, it directs you to yet another YouTube video that leads you down the same fantasy path. So I mean fantasy both in the strict genre sense of fantasy, like the kinds of worlds of that are created in video games, and also the fantasy of a kind of delusional fantasy, I suppose, that there's an illusion created of the kind of world, the person you might be, the kind of world that you might create with your band of brothers. And... I think that that's one of the reasons why it doesn't that why they drop off so much at the age of thirty. I mean, they can't sustain the fantasy anymore. Well, in relation to fantasy and uh, notions of heroism and political heroism and martyrdom and so on, um, I thought it was interesting that there's also discussion about uh, what's termed ship posting. There's a large number of uh, largely floaters, as you've described them, who are constantly, uh, you know, commenting or trolling. And they're engaged in a kind of, and often employing a form of uh, ironic detachment, which I guess is a form of plausible or implausible deniability on their part in terms of whether or not they're actually committed to these uh, ridiculous or awful things that they're saying. Is there a kind of opportunities or what opportunities exist for someone who engages, a young person who engages in that kind of behaviour online uh, to then proceed to take perhaps those politics a bit more seriously and and envisions themselves as becoming some kind of actual soldier or warrior in the cause of uh, the far right or or white supremacy? Mm -hmm. Well, it depends whether they just really do float or whether they become a bit more deeply engaged. At the point where they might become a bit more deeply engaged and keep going to particular chat rooms or or go down and appear in the comments after particular key YouTubes, then there is absolutely no doubt in my mind that the far right grooms them quite deliberately. Somebody reaches out and says, hey, you sound like a young man who knows what he wants and suggests a video or suggests something they could watch and then says, come back to me when you've watched that, for example. And there is quite a lot of that. I mean, I looked at um, Andrew Anglin. I don't know if you know that name. But he's in, I think it's US. Anyway, he actually goes out of his way. He invented a version of Pokemon Pokemon Go to try and draw young people in. I report that in the book too. So the far right actually grooms young people. And if you read some of those, some of the books, some of the biographies that have been written of people who've left the far right, they were almost all approached by somebody, whether online or offline, who, who became really friendly to them and told them how wonderful they were and how smart they were. And uh, it's not a sexual grooming. I'm not saying that. I'm saying it's a political grooming, if you like, and to tell them things about politics. And one of the examples I give in the book is a young man who was in a very sort of depressed socioeconomic area in an ex-industrial city in Britain and was really told that the group that he was joining was the only group that cared about working people in the city, for example. So that's what I mean by grooming. I may be using the term perhaps not in the, in the way that it's usually used, but I still think it goes on. And it depends upon the fact that young people are impressionable. So even by the age of, say, 19, young people are still fairly impressionable and they're coming to politics fresh. They've only just got the vote. So I think that they're that, – that's really sort of shocked me that the far right is so overt about this kind of thing. But to attract the young people to be supporters online, supporters of what they're doing, really enables groups like True Blue Crew in Australia and some of the worst ones like Antipathy and Resistance has just folded up, I think it's now under another name. But they can then count the number of supporters that they've got online and boast of it. 
And so it helps their public profile. We are the largest, most well-organised group in Australia. It was one of the boasts originally of True Blue Crew. Um, I guess, uh, finally, Pam, at the end of the book, you give some consideration to not only how uh, young people, especially young men, are attracted to the far right, but how they uh, eventually uh, exit the movement. I wonder if you have any uh, comments or observations on that process. I mean, what I collected was a whole lot of comments, secondary comments. Well, I hope we find some, you know, direct comments out of the research we're going to do. But what I collected, what I found was a number of young people saying that they just, one of the things that broke them out of it was just starting to mix with ordinary people again and not confine themselves to either offline or online, just being totally immersed in the far right. And once that started to happen, that they started to be able to exit. Of course, exiting extreme neo-Nazi groups can be very dangerous for the young people in question because they're very secretive groups and there may be retaliation, so it's not easy for them. The other story I recall very well was a young man who had left the far right, but years later, if he saw a sticker he said he got goosebumps all over him he couldn't help it even years later he he had been he had become so emotionally moved by his involvement with the far right that even though he later repudiated it he still it was still a thrill i suppose at some level he didn't like it but he said that's what happened to him in his body so there are a number of groups that now exist to help people get out of the far right and i i feel great admiration for young people who do as you can tell i'm I'm not somebody who necessarily condemns young people. I mean, I think we have to look at every story on its merits. And there's no doubt in my mind that the far right goes after vulnerable young people. And I guess that's what really concerns me. Well, Pam, thanks so much for joining us. The book is called Young People in the Far Right. It is out this year through Palgrave Macmillan. Is there anything else that you'd like to plug? If anyone really wants to understand this, if they look at the book, they'll see especially in the list of references after the last chapter, that there are a number of books that they can go and read that really delineate in detail young people's exits from the far right. And they're probably the most interesting stories if they really want to understand the phenomenon. Well, folks, that's all we've got time for. Global Interfada will be up next. Catch you next week. Department of you.
you're a renter experiencing hardship due to the pandemic, you can check now to see if you're eligible to apply for the Victorian Government's new one-off rental relief grant worth up to $1,500. To help you, Tenants Victoria have put together an eligibility checklist. This will make it easier for you to assess whether you're eligible to apply for the grant, which is paid as a contribution towards rent. There are some steps involved to qualify for the grant. See the checklist for more information and visit the Tenants Victoria website for further details on how to apply. Go to tenantsvic.org.au and search for Rent Relief Grants. Tenants Victoria is a 3CR supporter.